Hello everyone, I'm Phil Agnew and you're listening to Nudge, a podcast dedicated to revealing how consumers make decisions. Now the most common decision a consumer will make is whether or not to buy a product. Many things influence that decision, but the most significant factor is probably the price. Take buying a coffee. You'll never spend more than £4 or $6 because that's just too expensive. And you'll probably not spend less than £2 or $3 because that's too cheap. That £4 cup of coffee, though, could be the best drink you've ever tried, but you'll never know because it's just out of your price range. Pricing is so significant, yet many of us struggle to pick a price that really works. Consumers, they're irrational and they're hard to predict, so most of us just set a price that feels right and stick with that. But what if we looked at behaviour science? And what if we started to spot patterns and laws that, when applied, will give us a much greater chance of success? In this two-part episode, I speak to one of the leading experts on pricing psychology, Lee Caldwell. Lee is co-founder and partner at the Irrational Agency, where he applies behavioural economics to market research. He specialises in pricing and has helped dozens of clients find the ideal price point for their product and services. His book, which I know many of you will have read, is The Psychology of Price. It's used by marketers across the globe, helping us all improve the way we price our products. To start off, I asked what a marketer should consider when deciding a price for a brand new product. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. I always like a quote from uh, William Goldman, who was the writer of The Princess Bride. His quote was, nobody knows anything. Now, he was talking about uh, the movie industry. Nobody knows anything about what makes a movie successful. But I think this applies in marketing as well. And what it means to us is nobody knows anything about what something is worth. When a new product is introduced particularly, 
it's a key moment for creating the right expectations and the right positioning uh, for that product because it will totally change what people are willing to pay for it. Um, there is no objective value. There's only a value that you can create by uh, what you place the product alongside, by the category that you choose that it's going into uh, and the comparisons that you enable people to make. And so classic example of this was was Red Bull. Now they could have gone in and said, well, we're a soft drink. Um, we should price the same as other soft drinks. Uh, but instead they set their price something like three times higher than the soft drink market that was um, than, the, than the, the, the kind of main market positioning at the time uh, and for a smaller can as well. And by doing that, they uh, created this idea that this is a new kind of product. This is not just um, another version of Coke or Fanta. This is a completely different product and therefore it's worth paying more for it. The, the price and the way they positioned it, in fact, helps convey some of the, the benefits of the product. Uh, one of the examples that I use in the book is the idea that you you know you go on holiday and you are going to try the, one of the local specialties, one of the you know these this unique drink in wherever it might be, whatever you've you've gone on holiday. How much are you going to pay for that drink? Well, the main determining factor is going to be what glass does it come in. If they serve it to you in a half pint glass, you're going to think, well, this is like beer. I'm going to pay a couple of euros, a couple of pounds. If they serve it to you in a shot glass, then uh, you'll think, well, it's like a shot, so it might be even less. If it comes in a wine glass, then you may think, well, wine probably costs, let's say, uh, four or five euros or pounds, so I'll, I'll pay that. And if it comes in a champagne flute, then suddenly this looks like a uh, high-end premium drink and you would expect to pay seven or ten euros for it. So the same drink, uh, just reshaped literally by the glass that it's served in can change your assumptions. The way you position your product will dramatically influence what people pay. Red Bull charge three times more than Coca-Cola simply due to how they position their product. A latte from Starbucks costs almost 50 times more than a scoop of supermarket instant coffee. Product positioning can dramatically influence perception. It sets the first impression that determines whether consumers see it as a good deal or a bad deal. Another first impression that influences perception is the anchor your price is compared to. I asked Lee how anchors affect consumers, especially around pricing. Yeah, well, once again, it's about that first impression. But in the case of anchoring, the first impression is usually set not by an external cue like the a drinking glass, but by a number. An example I often use is wine, because wine is a very subjective product. We all know that wine comes in a wide range of qualities, a wide range of prices, and it's very easy to influence people to believe that a wine is worth more or less uh, because most people, include myself, are not that good at uh, discerning um, the different features of wine and uh, you know knowing exactly the difference between the particular grape or the terroir or the region it comes from or the vintage. Wine is something that you can strongly influence the um, what people are willing to pay. Something I often do is I ask people to write down their birthday, but just, just the day. So if you're born on the 
28th of October, write down 28, and then put in front of that number a pound sign or a euro sign. And then I show them a bottle of wine and I say, would you be willing to pay that amount of money for this bottle of wine? Afterwards, I then, I'm usually doing this in a, in a room, in a group context, so I auction off the bottle of wine. Um, so everybody says, I say to people, forget about the number you wrote down before. Now I just want you to bid what you think the, the true value of this bottle of wine is. Um, and the highest bidder will actually get the wine, in, but you also have to pay the money. And so everyone writes down their bids and I collect them in and usually there's some poor person bids about double what I actually paid for the wine so I make a profit which usually goes to charity but what I, I split the the bids into two groups a group from people who were born in the second half of the month so they their first number they wrote down was between 16 and 31 and a, a group of people who were born in the first half of the month from 1 to 15 and consistently I've done this about 20 to 25 times now consistently I find that people born in the second half of the month bid 25% more for the same bottle of wine. Now I think that's huge a 25% increase in bids just because you've been anchored by a completely random number is a really significant difference and it reminds me of a Dan Ariely similar study that asked students to bid on items after noting down the last digit of their social security number another really random number. The result is really similar. When students wrote down a higher number, they bid almost three times more than their peers for these items. It's incredible how an arbitrary number can have such an influence on us. But why does it happen? And what is the science behind it? It's a, it's a process that Kahneman and Tversky called anchoring and adjustment. So the anchoring is where you get the first, uh, the first value and the adjustment is where you then try to move downwards or upwards to what you think the true value is from the first number you heard. But the, the problem is that people don't adjust enough usually. So they, uh, in theory, they should just ignore the first number and try to work out how much is this wine worth to me regardless. But in practice, they can't uh, make themselves forget the, uh, the first question they answered. With anchoring being such a powerful nudge, Lee in his book suggests building it into your pricing strategy wherever possible. He suggests trying to lead with a three-tiered pricing approach containing a cheap price, a mid-price and a high-price option. To help determine what prices to set, he suggests following the 1 to 4 ratio. For example, pricing your products at $1, $2 and $4 or $50, $100, and $200. Doing so will nudge people up from your cheapest option, making them more likely to buy the middle choice. McDonald's do this with their signature burgers, Costa Coffee use expensive blends to add a higher anchor, and even Apple do the same with their ceramic case Apple watches, which are eight times more expensive than the standard watch. Anchoring works, and that's why the world's largest brands use it. But what about another well-known nudge that appears to have fallen out of favour? 
charm pricing. Now, charm pricing involves sticking a 99 cents or pence end on your price to give it the appearance of being much cheaper. It's an age-old tactic that appears to have fallen a bit out of fashion. Richard Shotton in the Choice Factory reports that in 2003, an estimated 30 to 60% of retail prices ended in a nine. However, that figure has since dropped. He collected a random sample of over a thousand supermarket prices and found that now only 8% contained charmed pricing. That's a drop from 30 at least to 8%. And that's less than you would expect from chance alone. Some retailers even shun charm prices completely. Not a single Sainsbury's price of the uh, 240 that he studied ended in a nine. I asked Lee where he stood on charm pricing. This is a very interesting area because it is hard to get a really robust, clear picture of what does really work. And it does seem to vary a little bit from uh, situation to situation uh, and category to category. Category. Um, there's not even a, an agreed consensus theory of why this really works. Um, but my interpretation of the evidence is when people are rushed, so in a supermarket typically you're probably trying to collect 10, 20 or 40 items uh, in your basket, you're probably not wanting to spend all that much time in there. Chances are you've got something else to to go home and do. When we're under that kind of time pressure, we get even worse than usual at doing mental arithmetic. And so I will grab something off the shelf. And if it says $2.99, if I stop and think about it, yes, of course, I know that that's really the same as £3. But when I am just keeping a very, very rough running total in my head, I am more likely to glance at it, see the two, add the two to my running total. And maybe if I think about it really hard, I might think, "Mm, let me round it up a bit. But you're going to be influenced by the the two at the front more than you'll be influenced by the three, which is the effectively the true value or the true price of the product. It's one of these, it's a bit like one of these optical illusions or magic tricks that we all know it's a trick. We all know that someone is kind of pulling the wool over our eyes and yet it still works uh, because we're not able to, at speed and in the moment, overcome our own intuitive reaction. Lee cites a study in his book by Robert Schindler, which neatly shows this phenomenon. Schindler asked participants to compare two similar products, one priced at $20 and one priced at $25. When asked, the participants said the difference in value was pretty small and individuals only showed a very small preference for the cheaper $20 option. Then Schindler changed the price by one cent. Now the most expensive option was $24.99 and the cheaper version was $19.99. The same participants suddenly had a very different view. They perceived the cheaper one to be much better value, showing a clear preference for it versus the expensive choice. Charm pricing is proven to work. There's science behind it. And it seems it's not just marketers who have realised this. Charm pricing appears to be prevalent in politics and public policy as well. A study of Danish municipal income taxes found evidence that tax rates with a nine ending were overrepresented compared to other end decimals. Policymakers clearly know how to make their taxes seem much better value. But are there exceptions to this rule? Should we use charm pricing everywhere or should we limit its use? 
There is evidence on balance that the nine ending does work and people will rate a product with with a lower left digit as better value than one with a higher left digit, even uh, though the actual underlying price is almost the same. There are exceptions. So some of the supermarkets now uh, have this round pound pricing idea. And what they're trying to signal with that pound, round pound pricing is we don't play these tricks on you. We are honest, we are we give you a fair price, we make it easy for you, we make it simpler for you to add up what's in your basket. That's fair enough, but it's you know that's a marketing story in itself. You can you can debate whether that's any more honest than pricing things at 99p. This niche of the round pound pricing is uh will it will play a part but my feeling is that it will only really ever represent kind of 20 or 30% of what we buy. And for the rest, there's still uh, an impact of the nines. And uh, for most consumer pricing, uh, and even even business to business pricing, I would recommend that uh, companies still follow that strategy. In episode six on Nudge, Professor Sybil Yang shared some insights into pricing. On the show, we talked about how charm prices were 9% more likely to be seen as good value rather than rounded prices. We also referenced a great 2013 study from Gumroad. Gumroad analysed all the items on their site under $6 where the price ended in $0.99 or a round dollar figure. They compared the conversion rates for both sets of products and found that the conversion rate for the charm priced products was 3.5% compared to a conversion rate of just 2.3% for those priced just one cent more. That's a difference of 51%. Now onto something a bit different. Perhaps you're thinking about surveying customers on what they would like to pay for your product. Maybe you want to ask your customers, you know, would you buy more of this product if it had a 99 price ending? Well, Lee has some advice on asking your customers about price. In his book, he explains how asking people how much will you pay often doesn't work. There's two problems with this approach. Firstly, customers will struggle to imagine themselves in the buying moment. You can do this yourself to understand it. If I asked you how much would you pay for a pint of beer, you'd probably struggle to answer. It depends on so many factors. It depends on where you are, what your friends are drinking, how many drinks you've already had as well. We struggle to imagine these scenarios, so we struggle to accurately answer the question. The second problem is that when asked, consumers may intentionally say a lower price to encourage you to set a low price. This is especially true in B2B purchases. The solution Lee states is not to ask, what would you pay? But instead to ask consumers to place themselves in the shoes of a third party, a friend or a colleague, and ask them what would they pay? Lee states this often leads to a much more accurate response. That is all for part one. Join Lee and I in two weeks where we'll cover the decoy effect, how to increase prices without losing buyers and the power of offering something for free. I want to give a huge, huge thank you for Lee for coming on the show. For any marketers interested in understanding pricing psychology, please do pick up a copy of Lee's book, The Psychology of Price. I've put a link to the book in the show notes. 
Lee is currently organising a virtual conference on cognitive economics. On July 9th and 10th, Lee and his team will share talks with some of the leading pioneers in behaviour science. If you're interested in attending that talk or those conferences, please click the link in the show notes uh, for more details and to sign up. Anyway, that's all from me today. To make sure you don't miss part two, please sign up to our mailing list, the links to which is in the show notes. And if you've got a few minutes to spare, please do drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It really, really makes the difference. All right. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Nudge. Thank you.